For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. We'll chant the repentance verse and then the Metta Sutta. Let me share that with y'all. Can everybody see that okay? Awesome. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow. Metta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, So with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites, one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to... Our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati. 
Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. May all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas extend their compassion to the benefit and well-being of all sentient beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas. Wisdom beyond wisdom. Maha Prajna Paramita. And maybe I will turn it over to Tygen to uh, introduce Neozon, or, or probably Neozon doesn't need any introduction. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Neozon, yeah, take it away. Yes. Um, happy to be with everybody this evening. It's uh, compared to some of the groups uh, um, uh, that we get these days, you know, these large conglomerations uh, from people around that I've not met. Uh, this is this is nice. It seems intimate. Uh, um, I pretty much know everybody. So, and I know you'll forgive me for what I'm about to do to you. So, uh, here we go. Um, guess what? Um, a disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given. A disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given. This includes the lives of others. A disciple of Buddha um, does not kill. I've been thinking about these uh, tonight, and uh, I've been actually thinking about these things for a while. Um, I can't quite get it together, so I think I'm going to put out some stuff there and require... Uh, of you all to to sort of draw lines between some of the dots and hope hope it kind of holds together and makes sense. Um, I want to talk about those two precepts that I just mentioned. I want to um, talk about them in the context of part of our meal chant, uh, the five contemplations. Um, some of this, some of you, one or two of you may have heard me say related things before. But I want to tease out some of the implications from the meal chant of this idea of not taking what is not given. What is given? What is not given? When does uh, taking what is not given, when does that become killing? So since I'm talking about the precepts in the context of the, the meal chant, you know, I will just sort of here remind people, you know, that oftentimes it's said that the spirit of our meals has taken in the zendo or formal meals or orioki meals. It's the spirit of just enough. Um, it's a subcategory, we could say, of this much discussed question uh, these days, what is appropriate uh, 
response. And of course, what is appropriate response is always a subset of this bigger question of how do we live in this world? What is, what is an appropriate way to live in this world? Maybe not for a person over there, maybe not for you. What is the appropriate way for me to live in the world day to day, having undertaken the commitments I've undertaken? And of course, you know, in talking, in, in this talking about the, uh, the meal chant, which of course, uh, and I'll read it in a moment. It, you know, it's, basically talking about food, but, uh, you know, that's ostensibly the subject. We're having a meal together, but I think it really can be taken as sort of a synecdoche or, or a, a stand-in for everything about our material consumption. I don't want to be prescriptive about this. I mean, it's like, like in Zazen, you know, we often hear here, we often say, you know, we can't do it right, but we can't really do it completely wrong either. And I think that the precepts have this quality also. Um, um, we might not get things exactly right, and what's right for me might not be exactly right for you. There's not some standard over there that's been written down, and um, we can get check our boxes against it. Um, not like that. One thing we can say about the precepts is that when we talk about the re- precepts, we're talking about the realm of consequences. We're talking about what actually um, affects people in the world. I, and I, I mean, I people might disagree with that formulation, but I think that's what the precepts are about. I think it's basically about how we treat others. Um, so it's in the it's in the realm of consequences, but um, I, I'm going to put forward a view here that um, it's not about consequences, but it's not not about consequences, or probably the other way is better. It's not not about consequences, but it's really not about consequences. Um, I hope that's not too confusing. Um, Everything we do matters. It, it, it matters what we do. Uh, but um, some things we do because they are the things for bodhisattvas to do, um, not because we have a, an expectation of a particular kind of outcome. Um, also, it's kind of a weird, I hope it's not too weird, uh, segue into this thing. Um, it occurred to me today, and, and you, in the, later you can, you can uh, correct me on this if it seems weird uh, or off, but it seems to me that in many respects, or at least in some respects, we are um, not quite there yet in how we think about our exploitation of, of resources, human and otherwise. Because um, that exploitation goes on. Bodhisattva does not kill. Bodhisattva does not take, and take what's not given. Except for, of course, we all do, um, inevitably, by virtue of our participation in this particular kind of social arrangement we have going. 
Um, now, of course, the burden of that collective karma, by definition, is mostly, you know, elsewhere, because I'm just this tiny speck, speck, right? But I would say that we have, nonetheless, uh, we have a personal share uh, in collective karma, not just in ab- abstractly, but we, we take on the burden of, of the bad karma um, that we find expressed around us. I think there's a way in which this, this is a part of, you know, if it's too oblique or whatever, just forget about it. But I think we're kind of in our thinking about resource use, um, kind of where we were a long time ago, um, about, uh, thinking about some of like, let's put it in a neutral way, racial disparities, cultural disparities, right? It's like in my memory, you know, from this very one, you know, singular personal perspective, you know, I don't remember a lot of controversy, uh, back when, uh, when people were able to talk about certain sectors of our society being disadvantaged. People have eyes, they have intelligence, right? They can take a look and they can see. And most people would not have found that a controversial thing to say. However, when the discourse changed to starting to speak about white privilege, things considerably, you know, people got a lot more antsy, a lot more uncomfortable. Um, why is that? You know, I think part of it is because precisely because it identifies that we have a personal share. In other words, uh, when we start talking about white privilege, we start talking about things that we might have to change personally, or, you know, more to the point, things that we might have to give up, we might have to distribute and share differently. So people freak out. And I think that that's where we are with, with things like the climate, climate catastrophe to a certain extent. Um, people realize that we're in a very dire situation, but can't quite come around to taking on, taking in that the situation will entail change, not just out there, here, also where I live, in my body. Um, and, and that, and, and there's a similar kind of thing. I mean, we're, people have a lot of re- resistance to, to that thought. And I don't know what the corresponding, you know, category that could, could both, uh, problematize us and put us all on the spot a little bit more in a personal way. I don't know what the corresponding thing to a term like white privilege would be, but we need one, I think. And this comes up for me, um, in part out of conversations we've had here, um, where, um, it's rightly emphasized, uh, that what will be required for anything effect, you know, for effective response, appropriate response to what's going on, um, in our world physically, um, uh, will re- it has to be collective. I don't think anybody would, would, would disagree with that. 
but um, there's something about that that often feels a little bit off to me as as a as a practicing Buddhist, and I think it goes something like this. Um, there's a I, and I'm not saying this is other people. I, I see this in myself. Um, to put it in a certain idiom of Western philosophical discourse, um, we say that uh, personal action or action on at the personal level in the personal sphere isn't going to cut it, right? Um, and we know this is true. Um, my religious recycling is, you know, not even recycling, really, because uh, I, I do my thing, take it out, and the people come by and, you know, put it in the landfill. Um, uh, but I still do it. Um, so, response. So, we go from personal response is, you know, maybe necessary, because obviously, if anything's going to change, it's going to have an effect on us, change will be entailed one way or the other. But we go, it's, it's like we do this trick. We go, uh, personal response is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Oh, so therefore we've got to talk about personal response. But from there, we do this, you know, that little bit of logic, which is very clear. We do this little subsequent illogical move, which is that, okay, personal response is not sufficient. Therefore, it's not necessary. And this feeds into this whole thing we have of this illusion, this delusion that we have that um, actually nothing will be required of us. Um, we'll get more energy efficient lights, computers, da da da. And we will. Um, whether that's going to be do the tricks, one thing, uh, I doubt it, but uh, we will. Um, and it will help. Um, And I would say that um, in, in just in this little bit about necessary and sufficient conditions or responses is that if we can avoid that mistake and we can realize that, you know, yes, we will have to make, there will be, let's change that, there will be changes in our lives, um, but we can wait for them to happen or we can exercise a degree of control, um, start making choices now. Um, all right. I'm going to read, I'm going to read the, uh, five contemplations very quickly. Um, oh, I'm reading them. Um, we reflect on the effort that brought us this food and consider how it comes to us. We reflect on our virtue and practice and whether we are worthy of this offering. We regard it as essential to keep the mind free from excesses such as greed. We regard this food as good medicine to sustain our lives. I'd rather say our lives here. Um, for the sake of enlightenment, we now receive this food. We now consume this energy. We now our lives. First, this is for the three benefactors. Or excuse me, this, this first, this is for the three treasures. Next, for the four benefactors. 
finally for the beings in the six realms. May all be equally nourished. The first bite is to end all evil. The second, to cultivate all good. The third is to free all beings. May we all realize the good way. <clears throat> One of the interesting things about this is it um, really highlights um, our embeddedness, our interrelatedness. We do it not only for ourselves, but for all beings, right? We do it for the four benefactors, this, all the beings in the sex realms. Um, you know, and there are, in the context of an Oriyoki meal, um, this broader, let me just check my note here, make sure I'm not going to get totally out of whack. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, this broader context is important. Um, you know, in very, very sort of narrow terms, we need to be aware as the food comes down the line and is being served, right? That there are people after us, right? And that if, you know, I mean, so there, there are multiple levels of mindfulness involved in an Oriyoki mill. You know, first, of course, you know, there's, and the one that Hansen talked about, thought about most is, you know, the kind of uh, contemplative, you know, eating of a raisin thing, um, which I'm not dismissing at all. Um, but it's about that kind of mindfulness, that level of mindfulness, how we pick up the glass and drink, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's right here in the, in the chant that um, we also need to be mindful of the embedded context in which we consume. And I don't know, you know, if this is a place to say it or whatever, but a very important part of making Oriyoki meals work um, is the gesture of, put, of putting out your hand, right, and raising it, which is enough. I've had enough. Um and part, partly, you know, sort of, again, first level, that's awareness of what your own physical needs are. But, you know, usually there's plenty of food, um, but not always. And it turns up in some contexts more than others. I mean, there were some times when I was last at Tassajara where the road was closed, um, supplies were short, and, you know, you really, it, you know, um, Sometimes you just knew, sometimes it would actually be made clear that if you weren't a little careful, uh, the, you know, people down the road, you know, might not get enough or people in the kitchen, you know, the serving crew might not get enough. And so there's this level of mindfulness too. Enough. Let's be mindful of, of these other people. Right? Now, first and foremost, of course, that's the people around us in the, in the Zendo. Um, it's the people who share the world with us now, this kind of, uh, interrelatedness. Um, but I wouldn't, it's not, it's not restricted to that, right? Um, you know, we all know this image of Indra's neck. Um, and it's a really wonderful, really fecund image, but it's also, I think of it as very static. I, and I think of it as kind of um, 
you know, I don't know why, as is kind of one dimensional, a little bit horizontal. And it was actually um, Gogen who set this particular Dharma in motion for me. And he did so in um, uh, uh, being time, right? Uh, which is, you know, sort of energizes the whole thing. It puts it on, it, it, it's like there's a different plane. It's not only horizontal, it's, it's, it's vertical. And it's not only about present, it's about, I mean, being time. It's, it's, it's about how, uh, uh, in part, I mean, there's so much going on in that essay, but it's in part about an exploration of the way, um, dependent co-arising unfolds within time itself. Um, uh, you know, the, the way in which, uh, past and present are in the future and future is in the present and in the past, you know, and how do we, how do we think about this? But part of what this does is it means that, um, you know, when the, the five contemplations, you know, sort of explicitly puts us in relation with people, I think we should remember Dogen and remember that this is also a relationship not only to those who were in the past and in the present, um, but uh, we are involved in a relationship personally, in a sense, with future beings, future people, right? Um, A very succinct way of, of stating, um, you know, our sort of a different version of the five contemplations, which I use informally and really like, um, and makes us even this thing about our relationships as expressed in the meal liturgy clearer is, is this, uh, this food comes from the labor of other people and the suffering of other forms of life. Um, and so when we think about present and past, you know, maybe, maybe the response to cultivate is one of gratitude. Not, I mean, there are plenty of things we have to uh, be unhappy about, about our uh, ancient twisted karma uh, alone and together. But um, uh, we also have cause for gratitude. And, uh, you know, nothing, nothing I ate today. Um, I, I could have gone to the garden and got a cucumber, but nothing I ate today um, was self-generated, right? Um, it all came from the labor of other people and suffering of other forms of life. Um, so, you know, again, Dogen's energizing of the sort of Indra's net image, um, to me, makes it very clear that um, when I chant this kind of meal and I'm concerned about will other, will others have enough? Um, that includes people to come. What we do matters. In the, in the chant, um, we also have this line, we keep, essential to keep the mind free from excesses such as greed. I would also, you know, if I were 
you know, going to be editing this, this chant for personal use, um, uh, I would say mind and body, right? It's just like, uh, greed is not exclusively a mental phenomenon. It may be at bottom, but it manifests, um, in our relationships with other people, right? Um, and, you know, I think in, when we think about what we're leaving, the world we are leaving to the future, um, maybe we have to develop a concept like passive greed or maybe even unconscious greed, you know, where we simply um, take more because it seems to be there, right? Um, it's as if the server of the world you know, comes to us and it's open. And um, without even thinking, you know, often, you know, oh, I can take this. Nobody's going to stop me. You know, I can have this. Oh, cool. My bank account's okay. Um, let's upgrade my phone. Um, you know, I mean, there's a million, a, a million ways, you know, where we, we sort of, um, reflexively take because it's offered and just as an Oriyoki server, I mean, this doesn't ex- sometimes happens, but I mean, would, um, properly speaking, continue to dish food out until you make this gesture, until you have this communication with whom? With the server, but primarily with yourself, with ourselves. And we say enough. This will uh, this will do, um, you know, and in the context of the meal, that's not just, it's not just a nicety. It's not just a, uh, you know, Oriyoki is not a game. Um, it's actually kind of a responsibility, uh, you know, uh, in that, in that kind of context. Um, so with all of this stuff sort of put out, I, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, I have this question, um, and I'm realizing I forgot a little bit of something here, so let me just go back. Um, oh, it, it has to do with the, the causes and uh, causes and conditions and, and consequences. Um, Precepts are in the domain of consequences, but I said before, they're not fully or exclusively about consequences. Um, and what do I mean by that? Um, some things we do simply because they are the things to be done. Um, because of the commitments we've made in receiving the precepts and in uh, determining for ourselves to to practice, right? And it almost becomes um, secondary or irrelevant what the consequences are. You know, and thinking about this collective thing versus an individual thing, I mean, you could think of a million examples, right? You would not... Um, <laughs> how would I... I don't know if this is good. Um, 
I am not in a very, any direct way. I mean, I, I said this thing before about how we're all involved, right? Okay, now I'm going to slightly contradict that and just sort of say, I am not involved in human trafficking, right? Um, as a, I'm not trafficked, I'm not a, what, a consumer of, of that or, or whatever. Um, you know, so when we think about consequences, I could, can say, I know, you know, that my personal, at one level, my personal abstention from that particular realm of human depravity is not going to address that situation. It's not going to take care of it. But that in no way, the fact that um, my individual action will have no uh, discernible effect. I don't, I don't think that there's no effect, but whatever effect would be extremely hard to discern on, on this tragic, horrible situation does not in any way, you know, and I don't think anybody would say, make this argument, um, uh, that it would in no, it would in no way, simply because my abstention does not change that situation. Um, I would not therefore say, well, okay, since me doing it or not doing it or be involved, not involved has no consequence out there. Um, actually it does. And we can talk about how this is a weak uh, thing here, but we, you know, we sort of go, we can't, we don't go from there to thinking, okay, well, since I can't stop it by my, my personal actions. Um, therefore, I guess I just go ahead and join the party, right? But that's kind of where we are on a lot of our things with regard to resource consumption. We go to, this is not, um, you know, my recycling, my, you know, uh, having only one light on in my house today. Um, none of these things make a big difference, right? Um, but, um, you know, we, we, I would, I would not go from there sort of saying, well, since it doesn't make any difference, I guess I can just sort of go hog wild. You know, Tygen touched upon this in a, something related in a, in a talk a few weeks ago where, where he was talking, he said, uh, you know, and correct me if I, if I get this wrong, Tygen, but you were talking about how, um, despair with regard to climate or pessimism with regard to uh, whether we can adequately address the climate catastrophe um, reduces to a kind of denialism because um, uh, if you do not think that your actions will have a discernible consequence, uh, there is no reason to do them. In other words, in that situation, people despair. Uh, they do not take uh, necessary action. Um, but I would say, despairing or not, depressed or not, um, this actually might not make a lot of um, difference to somebody involved in bodhisattva practice. You know, you know, one person's hope or optimism uh, versus um, another person's tendency to despair and a kind of darkness um, 
are just opinions in a way, you know? And so um, in the community of practitioners, you know, wherever anybody fell in that range, for somebody who's actually doing bodhisattva practice, that out, those outcomes are not important. In that context, this is not to say um, that those things are not important and that it's important not to effectively do things in the world, but within a certain angle of regarding practice, it makes no difference. One does uh, what... Uh, I don't know how to finish that sentence. I don't want to say should do. Um, one does, you know, if you do bodhisattva practice, you do bodhisattva things, and you don't do non-bodhisattva things as much as possible. That's all. So, um, you know, so in a way, to, to tie our activities, what we do sort of in the minute, micro sort of frame of things to possible results, this is almost the very definition of a gaining idea. We do something simply because, or, you know, not simply, but for the reason that we think it will have a particular effect. And if we do not get that effect, we are therefore not doing, no, this is, this is not uh, what it, what it is. Um, um, you know, and to, to put it, think it about it another way, you know, and Suzuki Roshi says, um, something to the effect that um, whether the sun rises in the east or in the west, you know, a bodhisattva always walks in the same direction, always follows the same course, the same path. Um, and, you know, whether the future, you know, opens up into some kind of, you know, some kind of planet redemption, some kind of save, some kind of what, or not, doesn't matter. I mean, wait, wait, wait. Of course, it matters hugely. It matters hugely. But from the perspective of one's, what one does, how one moves through the life that they're leading, it may not be the determinative point. Um, you know, you may decide not to involve yourself in whatever ugly activity or, you know, uh, hoggish behavior. Um, you know, you may decide to refrain from that because, uh, or you may, I mean, angled. whether or not, you know, whether or not it makes any difference, you may just decide, well, and I, I hope you will just decide, well, you know, I'm, not involving myself with that. So the question becomes, you know, just that I'll leave you with this. Um, you know, when does, you know, this precept of not taking what was, what is not given, when does our own consumption become theft? Right? I mean, obviously, I mean, my own view, I mean, we're, in a society that's largely organized around the very thing, theft. Um, but, um, you know, my politics, I guess, but, um, when does our own consumption become theft? Um, the light in the other room in my house is not burning. 
if I'd left it burning for, you know, the, the time I've been here, would that be theft? It might be, you know, I mean, uh, it's not going to be down there for, you know, certain, I mean, they're provisos, developing renewable energy or whatever. But basically we are just spoiling things, right? And that means that in the future, uh, people with whom we're sitting in this, sharing this meal with, um, will not have enough. You know, what is my obligation to a person 200 years from now? Clearly, um, it would never be traceable. Um, uh, you know, most, as we, as I said before, most of the problem is out there. You know, the other six and a half billion people collectively, right? But, you know, I, I have to ask myself because I do have a share, a personal share, and therefore I might make certain choices about what I consume, what I don't consume. How do I consume? Because that question, when does, when does our own consumption become theft? Very quickly, you know, leads to the question of when does our, when does our consumption, um, when does our particular theft become murder? Um, people die. People are dying now, you know, and people will more. And this is not to say that it's immoral to consume. It's unbodhisattvic to consume or anything like that. But the model should be Oriyoki. Frankly, I think, you know, we should, you know, determine, and this is all very mushy, right? We should determine our own need. Um, and, and try to be, you know, I think we're under an obligation to, to be realistic about that and not simply, um, collapse, you know, desire plus availability into an idea that we can just have everything. I mean, we are very committed as culture to this idea, right? Um, somehow things are going to come along and uh, it'll be fixed. And, you know, I will not have to give up any of my privilege. I will not have to give up anything. You know, we're all committed to this model um, at various degrees of consciousness. So anyway, um, I don't know what that talks about. I think it's just um, what it really comes down to is a slight ill ease at the way um, I, I do not disagree at all that um, we need to act collectively. But to go back to this language of, of necessary and sufficient conditions, um, Acting collectively is not going to be sufficient. Justice, in the example I use with white privilege, is not only about fixing systems, right? That's hugely important. It's essential, right? Um, necessary, but not sufficient. Um, because we also need to do work here. We need to do work here. Um, and I think it's the same. So, I don't know. There you go. Baba, wawa, was anything said or not? You can tell me. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Neozan. So um, I think now we take questions, comments from folks, and you can raise your hand digitally. 
um, via, let's see, this participants button, I think. Everybody yes. knows how to do this at this point. Um, or, you know, raise it in the camera too, and we'll call on you. Or Neo's on, you feel free to call on people too. I don't need to. Okay. That. Yeah. Uh, Dylan then Ogatsu. Thank you for a wonderful talk, Yozan. I mean, there's uh, there's so many directions to take that. Um, I think for me, the the um, the central question for me is, you know, what um, uh, how. <laughs> What, what do you do on a day-to-day basis at this stage of capitalism in America? Like, what, what, is, what, is, what is the day-to-day look like practically in my life, you know? Um, and to, I think responding to your point about collective action not being sufficient and individual work, you know, being, being important, I think for, for me, the, the pivot between those two places the, the middle way, or um, could, you could say, I guess, is uh, friendship. Uh, that I think that for me is the guide of how I navigate what do I do on a day-to-day basis and when is it time for me to be in the streets? When is it time for me to be doing some, like participate in a, in a larger collective action that it's time to do? Um, so, you know, I think my, my day-to-day effort, like, you know, I, I have day-to-day routines about what I think an ethical, meaningful life looks like. Um, and I depend on friends like you, many people in this room right now, many people that aren't in this room, that will uh, help guide me about when those individual tendencies need to change in one way or another. Um, or let me know about, you know, uh, some new form of information that makes it so that maybe what was the path yesterday is not the way the path tomorrow or today. Um, so that's what jumps up for me first and foremost is that friendship, I believe is that space between the big collective thing and then the, the hyper particular one speck of dust amongst 7 billion uh, question. How, uh, Dylan, if I may ask you, thank you for that comment. Uh, really interesting. Um, you're bringing friendship into this uh, on the face of it makes um, great sense. And a lot of intuitive sense to me um, in, for example, the domain of um political action, that kind of thing. Um, could you explain a little bit more how if it, how you would apply that to this other domain that I was bringing up, which, I mean, basically about consumption? And, and partly I ask you that, you know, because it's a struggle, you know, it's interesting. It, it's like, you know, this is another thing that I've been sort of fiddling around with lately. Is we talk about Buddhism, it's a middle way, right? Um, uh, and, you know, in many ways, in certain times and places, the middle has a very technical sense, whatever. Um, 
But I've been thinking about it lately, at least in this area, as Buddhism as a somewhere in the middle way, right? It's not like, it's not about, you know, prescribing what other people do. It's about, you know, doing some discernment and practicing some strength, restraint. I mean, I, li- I live a life that many people would not want to live in this area. I'm not saying I'm not saying or anything like that in terms of what I use. It's just, but I use less than lots of people. And I'm not trying to tell other people what to do. I'm just trying to raise it, right? But anyway, could you, could you do the, say something about friendship in that context? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think um, for, you know, each of us, the, the scope of when are, when, when am I, uh, micromanaging and when am I responding appropriately that, uh, the, 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 the input of someone that knows me well, uh, helps me guide whether I'm, uh, helps me guide myself in whether I'm leaning too far on the micromanaging or whether I'm leaning right onto, or whether I'm on the, the, uh, the, the appropriate response or whether I'm being too loose, you know, it's like the, you know, the classic, uh, guitar string metaphor, you know, yeah. but I think, I think that's, you know, your maybe your recycling example is a really, uh, apt one here where, you know, uh, it, it, what, cause you can go down a rabbit hole of, do I not recycle at all? Do I just throw my garbage out the front door? Do I not take out the garbage? Do I sort everything from paper to plastic to uh, aluminum to, you know, do I separate the bottles and cans? Does it all go to the same place? So, you know, that that's the, the friend would, you know, that, that I would first trust myself on making that determination on is uh, what, what, what is good enough for right now? Yeah. You know? And then if I'm still feeling lost that, uh, you know, maybe I should be separating the recycling. Does the city separate the recycling? Should I be separating the cans and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the paper that that's when I might call you or, you know, call Ruben or something and say, Hey, what do you know about how recycling works in, in, you know, wherever, wherever we live so that that's, um, uh, th- that's, that's how it operate on an interpersonal sense. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Um, Ogetsu, you had something? Yes. Well, we live in the world of endurance, which is a very difficult place for some humanoids. Um, and probably even more difficult for non-humanoids because we're around. When you were speaking about Oriyoki, I was thinking about the principle of Nioho, mm-hmm. like Nioho A, which is clothing according to the Dharma, but Oriyoki is a subset of that, eating according to the Dharma. Uh, how one relates to the physical environment is according to the Dharma. And the principles have something to do with some very basic things like simplicity, humility, respect. Um, I sat next to like senior priests who had uh, their water boards or their, not the water board, but there's that little placemat. I 
forget what it's called, Hatan, I think, that were like almost shredded. It was so old, you know. And there are some people where everything always looks brand new in their Oriyoki sets. And I feel like there's a place for everything. But there's something about practice that, you know, you don't want to get too attached to like the most shredded up Hatan. But, and if somebody gives you a new one, you may accept it graciously. But there's something about these principles of how we live together in the world that's acknowledging harmony and respect that I, I really value in practice. And it has a gentleness to it. You know, today, well, actually a few days ago, I noticed a very, I've planted a lot of milkweed and things in the garden. And I noticed a very tiny, tiny monarch butterfly caterpillar. And I was so happy to see it. But, you know, I wanted to rip it off the plant, put it in a jar and feed it so I could watch the butterfly emerge from the chrysalis. I so wanted to do that. And I was reciting the precepts to myself as I was thinking this, thinking I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to take what is given. And I'm not sure, like, would it protect this caterpillar if I took it in? Or would it make it more vulnerable to a shorter life when it turned into a butterfly? So, you know, these are the things that I think practice tenderizes and makes our heart very sensitive. But I feel it's not so prescriptive, but how do we develop the capacity to actually see ourselves very clearly and know that we can never see it very clearly and to approach things with caution and kindness. And so, you know, I really appreciate your talk and I think I could feel your struggle in that. And I think it's a struggle we all have, you know, how do we live and express our dharmic hearts fully? So thank you, Neozon. Well, and then th- and thank you. Um, yeah, you. Um, I really appreciate your bringing um, the words humility and respect into this. I, I, you know, I was trying to, you know, I was talking about our re- relations to previous generations, and I was thinking, well, you know, fundamentally, there's got to be a big chunk of gratitude there. Um, you know, and think thinking both backwards. Now that you've given me the word and, and forwards. Um, Respect. I mean, if nothing else, what's going on now is just a fundamental disrespect of everything that's going to come after. It's terrible. Um, and I'm going to tell this little anecdote just because it might amuse Alex, who, who will know this, but you were, you were talking about using the ratty old, uh, hot ton. Is that what it's called? The, the mat? Yeah. Whatever, whatever that thing's called. Um, and I was remembering when I was, tra- you know, what, 25 years ago, something like that, traveling in Korea uh, with Samu Sunim. And um, um, he got really angry at me, so angry that he was, like, yelling at me. Why? Because after a week, I changed my toothpick. I should have made that toothpick last for longer, you know. It was like, whatever. So, so yes, sometimes you go ahead and you consume some else. Second toothpick. But I would say... No disrespect to Samu Sunim, um, whom everybody knows I had problems with, but I also have a lot of gratitude and respect for. Sorry, I'll get to Well, I just, I would think, how do we meet? Like, my personal response to your experience was the venerable 
Samu Sunim, is that I somehow feel like people don't learn from being hit on the side of the head. I had a calligraphy teacher who was from Japan and his family was completely firebombed during the World War II. Like, you know, the atom bombs were kind of bad, but the firebombing killed even more people. And he said, oh, yeah, when his and he became a priest uh, because he had no family and was orphaned. But he said his calligraphy teacher would hit him on the side of the head every time he made a brush stroke that was off. And he was a very kind teacher, but I thought, you know, I, I could feel the pain that he still had from that. So I think when we try to correct our mistakes, um, maybe our way in our Soto Zen, postmodern, capitalist way is kind. You know, and at some point, maybe if you're turning off all the lights in your house, maybe someone will notice that and use fewer. And maybe then more people, who knows? We can't control that. Maybe we'll go down a wormhole and all of our problems will be solved. But we can't know this. But I think there's something about being kind in the world and not shaming people because, you know, your respect wasn't great enough for your toothpick. I think, you know. <laughs> you know, um, I meant to say this before, too, but it, again, you know, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you said something about um, unknowing. We just don't know very much and we just can't see very far. And, you know, in that situation, what makes more sense. I mean, there's, uh, you know, one response or one instinct is toward sort of like, you know, defense and even attack, you know, but another one, and I think you're right. This is, I think this is something that emerges out of practice is to, um, to uh, confront not knowing with, um, as much kindness and understanding and uh, compassion as we can muster, right? We never see the full situation. Again, did you have any, uh, any comment? Well, I, I'm, Interest. Oh, uh, Alex, do you have your hand up? Go, why don't you go ahead? First? Oh, yes, go ahead. I didn't see you. Thank you for the for the talk. And, and um, yeah, just just thinking about uh, connecting the dots uh, explicitly to uh, between killing and in, in, in consumerism in terms of, um, um, you know, our society's uh, consumption of, of meat. And um, the the you know the how the very relationship that that um, that people have with the natural world is a consumer one. You know, we have brood brood X cicadas come out. Well, maybe not in the Chicagoland area, but something I'm seeing is res- is recipes in the Tribune for how to how to eat them, and how you know often the way that people 
uh, commune with with nature um, is is you know through through wanting to you know pin and mount it uh, uh, essentially, and um, you know I was I was just recalling how you know um, uh, Robert Buswell's book about being in a Korean monastery, and and I I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but how how taken I was with uh, that they're so dedicated to not harming sentient beings that the that there would only be during retreat season I think it was once a month or twice a month where the monks were uh, permitted to wash their undergarments because there was the belief that the uh, the uh, the on, on this particular day any dust motes that were harmed would be you know reborn in the in the uh, in the pure land and um, how uh, you know it's I think uh, we have a, an idea about um, um, limiting our, our consumption that that it, it will be suffering but like there's just so much um, uh, beauty and levity to to living uh, lightly um, uh, upon this earth. But thank you for the talk. Yeah, thank you, Alex. And I was thinking what you were saying, you know, um, it is true, you know, you see babies and there's this tremendous uh, thing, you know, interest in putting things into their mouths. And I think in many respects, we don't really get too far away from that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, we just thank you. I can, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to thank Alex for using the word levity. Yeah. Uh, first of all, there's so many middle ways involved. I was I was interested in your talking about how do we find the middle, and and as you were indicating, it's different for each one of us and for each part of everybody in the world. And, you know, it's, um, um, just to go back to what to you were referring to something I said about not despairing, but that I didn't mean optimism. We don't know. Uh, we don't know that, that we don't know is so important, but to assume that, um, to to assume despair and that things will just keep getting worse or something like that or that it's hopeless is um, arrogant in a way because uh, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, but I, I'm 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 uh, struck by the middle way, which is different for each one of us between how to take care of our personal consumption and how to see what's happening in the world and. Uh, Maybe I'm maybe my middle way is leaning more to that the latter side since I used to work in TV news or whatever. But um, uh, I'm just you know this week struck by the incredible heat wave in the Northwest and hearing that uh, ocean beings, mussels and clams were were boiled to death. By the, by the temperature in the Northwest. And it's just, it, that is painful to me. And so 
we each have to find our middle way. I mean, Dylan was talking about this too. How do we find our middle way between taking care of what we are each doing, which is vital, and how do we see how to respond uh, more widely in the in this social realm? And so I, you know, I don't have any answers, and it's different for each one of us. But um, you know, for me, I feel like any way that I can encourage the systems, which is not the whole story, but the systems to, damn it, respond to the climate catastrophe that's happening all around us. Um, anyway, that, that's where, where I struggle. Where, how, do I, how do I do that? There's not one right way. Um, I, I think the idea of the middle way more and more seems really important to me. And, and, um, what is the appropriate response and not to get stuck on any one appropriate response and to respect radical respect for each person's um, appropriate response. And, um, you know, this, uh, somebody mentioned yesterday, um, category, one middle way is between category Roshi saying remain, uh, to remain in silence and the, and the other side is you have to say something. So how do we not with, not out of optimism, but not, but without despair uh, um, respond to all the things happening in the world. And at the same time, take care of, you know, our own particular zoom box, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) So anyway, that's, that's what comes to mind from what you said. So I appreciate the thoughtfulness of your talk. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it makes any difference. When I was citing your earlier contribution, um, I corrected myself from optimism to hope, you know, maybe slightly different. But uh, but your basic point there um, is is right. You know, I mean, all of that um, uh, takes place within the, the, the context that Hogas had pointed out, you know, that we live in the Saha world and we don't know very much. We were always in, in not knowing. And I don't know. And I, I guess the point I was trying to make there is that, um, you know, would a bodhisattva, you know, this is maybe a, how many angels dance on the head of a pin thing, but, you know, if the world were going to go up in flames tomorrow, I mean, literal, if we're going to be blown up tomorrow, would a bodhisattva then think, well, it's all going to be done tomorrow, so I might as well just really go to town in whatever ways. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, as, as Suzuki Roshi said, you, you know, you set a direction, that's the way you go. Um, I don't know. I think we're getting late here, so I really appreciate uh, people uh, responding. And uh, um, I think Douglas's hand is raised. Oh, Douglas. <laughs> Sorry. I'll try not to drag this out too much. You can take as long as you want, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much for raising these kinds of issues. I think it's really something that we have to keep in mind. I think that what I tend to think of is that always trying to maintain um, an awareness of connection to the world and to others and not an immediate connection, but a broader connection and an understanding that the well-being and suffering of others, it's not really out there separate from us, but there is an intimate connection between what 
or we do and uh, benefits and harms that can uh, result for other other people, other beings. Um, and I think of that as a more helpful way, uh, and actually a more Buddhist way, than to think uh, in terms of um, duty or obligation and whether I'm doing enough. Um, because there's not enough for us to, you know, yes. to, to remove the suffering of all beings in the world. So um, I think we do what we maintain that awareness and we do what we do. And I think that we have, we do respond to the awareness of the suffering from others. And, and especially in light of a sense of intimate connection with others. Um, and I appreciate also Hogetsu's um, reminding us that there is this limited horizon where we can't really see what the consequences of our actions are going to do, to be. And uh, it's not even theoretical that uh, some action that we could take that might be a generous action in some way might have consequences that aren't good for some people. But uh, the best we can do is to work with what is at least foreseeable. Um, and maybe with a certain amount of faith that there's, um, and in that regard, I, I tend to also find, get a, a good bit of inspiration from, you know, the Dogen's Bodhisattva Shishobo, where he talks about even the smallest, most humble gift plants a seed of goodness for this and future ages. And without having any idea of, of what those uh, that seed of goodness is going to produce, um, we still plant the seeds uh, with as much awareness as possible of, of what consequences might be. Anyway, that's all I needed to say. Well, well thank you. And that's a really good point. And um, something you said in passing, remind, you know, you're talking about the intimate intimacy of, of connection and you know something I meant to say in my talk and neglected to is that and I don't I won't say a lot about it but just the importance of how we frame things you know I'm going back to this example I used before about talking about being um, talking about um, you know the dispossession of certain people in our society versus talking about privilege, right? It's not like we're talking about two different things. They're just framed differently, but they're actually just the obverse side. They're, 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 it's the, precisely the same phenomenon, um, just with one way of phrasing it ignores part of what's going on. Anyway, thank you, Douglas. It is getting late, so maybe, um, Bo, if you would lead us in the um, Four Bodhisattva Vows, and then we'll have announcements. Thank yeah. you. I'll share the, uh, the vows now. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. 
Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.